This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we really have a treat today. We're in the conference room of Babson Farms, and we're with the CEO, Taylor Kirkpatrick. And Taylor, welcome to the show. Bob, thanks for having me. You know, it's fun. You know, we chatted on the phone beforehand. I thought I was going to have a good time chatting with you because we had a great time talking on phone before the episode. So do us a favor. Tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Sure. So the easy answer is Babson Farms is a family office, which is a term that a lot of folks may or may not be familiar with. And, and what it is, is I serve one family managing their assets. These assets were created 100 years ago when my great-grandfather, Henry Babson, went and visited Thomas Edison at the Columbian World Exposition 1893 in Chicago and said that he was willing to go and sell the phonograph for Thomas Edison outside of the United States. So he took a prototype of the Edison talking machine and went to China and India and sold several thousand of those over the course of about two years. And when he came back, he took those winnings and started a mail order catalog that competed with Sears catalog in the south side of Chicago called Babson Brothers. And that sold everything from sundries and fabric and things like that to dairy equipment and other farming equipment. And he was selling a piece of equipment that he realized was not that great. It was difficult to clean. There were some sanitation issues and it would taint the central plant of the milk if you didn't have clean vulcanized rubber tubes and things. So he ultimately patented, invented and patented, and then sold the majority of the world's dairy equipment called Surge Dairy Products for a period of about 50 years. In the 70s, we had a liquidity event when we sold that to Westphalia, which is a German conglomerate. And then the proceeds from that sale led to the core assets that we have today. So we're focused on our sort of our core asset is really based on agricultural holdings that we have, which are mostly in North Central Illinois. So we have a bunch of farms that grow corn and soybeans up in North Central Illinois. And then we have supporting operating businesses that are product and services that we use ourselves that then we said, well, we can do this in-house and then we can also help our neighbors as well. So those are everything from a captive crop insurance company to a tiling company, which is a a drainage situation, to bin storage and some trucking and transportation, and then GIS mapping services. So those are the types of things that we do for our customers, and that's what we're trying to do. So when you say, who do we serve? uh, The question for me, it's really uh, the constituents are the family themselves. So that's everybody that is lineal descendants of, of Henry Babson. And then there's also the employees that we have that work within these businesses, and then the partners that we have. We have operating partners that manage and work on all these farms. And so we have to make sure that we're sort of being smart about doing what we can and and helping the family members achieve what it is that they want with the proceeds of these businesses, and then also making sure that the employees are happy and that the operating partners are happy. And then the end users, really, for us, we don't really see that down the chain, but we're selling this corn and soybeans out to either ethanol plants or to the elevator or to the river or on the futures market. So for, you know, here in, in the office, I met the nice lady in the front. Yep. And we chatted beforehand and said, you guys had a discussion about the firsthand success that Babson had when he went to China. Mm-hmm. I understand that there was a small hiccup. <laughs> it, is, it is a great story. When he was making the cylinders, this was this shows you actually the RCA Victor Ola, which which ultimately won, is what everybody thinks of when they think of a record, that flat disc. Edison had it play on a cylinder on a drum. So that was the way that he was trying to record the music. 
And when he knew he was going to go to China, Henry Babson went to Chinatown in Chicago and recorded what he thought was somebody that, so that they could demonstrate the efficacy of this product in China. But what he did is he recorded Cantonese China, Chinese versus Mandarin Chinese. And so went over, everybody looked at him quizzically and he couldn't figure out why this wasn't working. And it found out that it was the wrong dialect that he recorded. So he had to come all the way back to the United States. It wasn't an airline flight. No, this is not an airline <laughs> flight to record in Mandarin. So there was a little hiccup, but I guess uh, one learns to adapt and overcome those, those exciting headlines. <laughs> I think about all kinds of, you don't just stand up and go to China. Mm-mm. And then you're going to go, I'm going to go and sell in China and I don't speak the language. Right. And I think about, because he also, with success, got involved in the horse market. Sure did. We were chatting about just the the logistics of what he was trying to do. And it was in the Arabian market, right? That's right. So when he was traveling, he fell in love with a certain type of horse, the Arabian horse, and decided that if he ever made it big, he was going to try and bring Arabian horses to the United States. And so when he did get some success, he went and traveled around the world and went to several different countries to try and find the right stock. And ultimately ended up with Six mares and two stallions that came known as the Babson blood or the Babson breed of the Arabian horse in the United States. But it took him years to find those horses, and he had to travel all over the world to find them. And when he came back and finally did get them here, it was this sort of hand-wringing that took months because to get them from a boat to a train to a truck to get them to the ultimate farm that he had in Dixon, Illinois, was a real process. And then... After breeding them, it was another several years to see whether or not these were things that people thought were actually going to demonstrate the right characteristics to be the right Western pleasure saddlebred horses. And so this process was, I mean, a demonstration of patience and of intestinal fortitude. It ended up being a very successful operation. It sort of arced and crested with about 110 horses in the stables. And then the world sort of moved on past the Babson blood and, and ultimately decided to look for other characteristics. And so there is still a lot of Babson blood that's out there that's crossbred, but there aren't that many purebred Babsons anymore. So obviously he took the long view. He sure did. Well, it's still evident today, isn't it? That's right. Because Babson is still here. That's correct. That's really our goal. I mean, we try to think generationally. We try to think not about what we can do in the next year or three years or five years, but what's going to happen in 20 years, 50 years, and 100 years. And you know, one of the old saws about land they don't make it anymore is a reason that we still continue to hold on to these agricultural holdings. And I don't think you'll see us sell out of them for the next 20 generations. You know, I think that's because you're fifth generation. I'm Gen 4. Gen 4. Yep. And you know, we were chatting about the family office similarities, and you had an old axiom about family offices. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because when you see one family office, you see one. Every family office is very different, and some families have huge dispersion and many, many family members, and some are very small. We're on the small side of things, and even through Gen 4 and Gen 5, we're still in the single digits as far as lineal descendants. So if you compare that with some of the bigger families that everybody knows, whether that's the Pritzkers, the Rockefellers, or the Coors family here in Denver or anything, those folks are numbering in the hundreds in many cases. And so they come with their own set of problems, and having a small, very focused group of constituents is also uh, comes with its own excitement, I guess I'd say. We were going to talk about that, and 
for a lot of folks, they run their business just for their customers. Mm -hmm. And for you, you're running the business for not only these family members, but future family members. What's it like to take and operate in that environment? It's a responsibility that I take very seriously. And it's something that it's difficult because there are times when you feel as though everybody knows that your heart's in the right place and you're trying to do the right thing. But just because of the added dynamic of trying to run a business and trying to create additional wealth on behalf of other people that don't have the opportunity to participate. And so they feel as though they're sort of passively watching, but being able to judge your successes from the sidelines, it's really tricky. And I think taking on that responsibility at the beginning, it had a detrimental impact on my relationship with my brothers to a certain extent in that I think some of the baggage that came with them knowing me as a brother for my whole life and knowing where my capabilities were and where my weaknesses were as well. That was something that I think was made them anxious and the change that occurred made them anxious. But the good news has been through probably way more luck than through my own ability. We've had a, a pretty good run of things. And I think the level of changes has dropped dramatically over the last couple of years. And so as we've sort of settled into the groove and, and the dust has settled, I think everybody's become much more comfortable with the path forward and this sort of strategy that we've articulated about how we're going to continue to grow this business. You know, I, I think about the change from the original Babson mm-hmm. and Victrola, and I think it was on wax that they did the recording on the That's Edison right. deal. And we now have internet and digital. And so over the lifespan of Babson, We've gone from rudimentary technology to incredible technology. And I think about, so you're charged with seeing the future, (laughs) trying to take advantage of where an opportunity might occur in the future. And you're also charged with day-to-day operations. What do you do on a daily basis or how do you take and populate your mind with the stuff that allows you to get 100-year view, Mm -hmm. day-to-day view? What do you do? Great question. I'm a believer in there are things that the more things change, the more they stay the same in some ways. So one of the things that we really focus on is on the day-to-day side, it still comes down to relationships with family members, with the employees, with the operating partners, and with ultimately our end users. So I think that the level of loyalty and respect and creating an environment that is a place that people want to come to work is all still going to be there forever. So I think that that piece will always stay the same. The way that things have evolved as it relates to things like technology, we do a lot to try and stay informed about and abreast of different technologies, certainly within the ag space, but also just in other investment spaces. And so we pilot these new technologies that are trying to be predictive as far as picking the characteristics of the seed that we use. We do precision farming to the extent that we are sending out soil samples every year so that we know exactly how much of the different nutrients that we have in the soil, P and K, and and we know what kind of fungicide and herbicide we should be applying and in what capacity. And that changes from acre to acre on the fields because depending on the undulations and the amount of water that is leaching those off of the fields, that impacts it very differently from one corner to another. We're also very comfortable with the idea that we're stewards of this land, and so we make the additional investments to try and do things like keeping the waterways clean and being above the EPA standards as it relates to fertilizer going into the the watershed 
Um, and so we are sort of the gold standard as far as how we keep that under, keep it measured and keep it under control on the properties that we own. And then as far as the investment side, I am a big believer in the the fact that the world is going to continue to evolve and it's going to continue to change much, much faster than it ever has before. So this weekend, I'm leaving to go to Austin, to go to South by Southwest, to go to the Intelligent Future track of that. And I go to conferences and symposia several times a year to try and stay on top of those types of new technologies and, and how one can invest in and, and benefit from those technologies. You know, we as a family on the investment side have invested in everything from blockchain to driverless cars to technologies that are being created outside of the United States and have invested specifically in countries like Israel, where they do have this sort of startup nation component to them. We're trying to be smart about how we invest and maybe getting a little bit out of the tracks of just equities and fixed income and looking at alternative investments, looking at direct investments in private equity and real estate that hopefully round out our, our total portfolio. You have background. I do. Yeah, because you worked in that industry prior to this job. I worked in a couple of mutual fund companies involved in product development there, and then I was an investment banker doing mergers and acquisitions for a, a period of about 12 years. So, you know, you kind of go over seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly? I have. And you have language skills? I do have some language skills. I, I was a French major in college, which was really helpful once in my life, uh, which was I was, at a, I was at a Boston market. I was ordering two rotisserie chickens, and the ladies in the back were from Haiti, and I heard them saying to each other in French, that fat bleepity bleep needs two chickens. And I was able to say to them in French, I speak French and it's for a dinner party. <laughs> so it helped me then. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. I, I lived in Paris for 18 months after I worked in the mutual fund industry for, for about five years. As you take that time frame and you were in Paris, what, do you, what effect do you think that had on your perspective and behavior in your current role? It was a really wonderful time to be there. And I was able to take a step away from really being in the work grind. And so I took cooking classes and art classes and actually wrote a book then that was published in the United States later. And so I was able to sort of touch on some of the components of life that it's hard to find the time to balance when you're really working business and when you have a family and all the rest of that stuff. So there was a, a really nice departure for me, but it was also nice to get back into the mix as well. You know, I think about we were chatting and all of us have bucket lists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably one of the things they may not know about you is your most recent performance. <laughs> it, it's true. I, uh, Hesitant to say, but I did. I've I've always enjoyed stand up comedy, so I did a two minute set at the Comedy Works here in Larimer Square in Denver a couple of weeks ago, and it was just a kick. It was one of the greatest experiences as far as when you get that first laugh on stage and you hear two hundred people enjoying what you're talking about and something that was your own joke or your own idea. That's something pretty powerful. So I'm. I'm definitely on the docket to do it again. Think about it. You wrote the book, and you did comedy. And, you know, both of them have an element of a hook. Mm -hmm. And I think about the skill set to do that. That application, when you're working, you were talking about culture, trying to preserve the culture of your organization mm -hmm. and communication skills between France, the book, and comedy. Do you think those are benchmarks or indicators of the culture that you're trying to keep going? 
I'll tell you one thing. There are times when in this business, there are conflicts. And I think the conflicts, comedy is a terrific way to diffuse when tensions are very high in a room. And I think I'm proud of the fact that even though there will be times when it has to be confrontational, when you're unhappy about something that's happened, when you're at the place where both sides are about ready to have some sort of a detente, it's nice to be able to diffuse that a little bit with a joke, get everybody to calm down and realize that the world still turns and all that stuff. So I think that that's a, certainly a, a technique that I've employed for a long time. And I, I would also argue that I think that people should want to go to work. And I think that creating an environment that people feel like is collegial and that they can laugh and share stories and, and enjoy each other's company is really important to the culture of the organization. So I hope that my jokes aren't too corny or aren't too offensive or don't do anything to make anybody feel uncomfortable. But I do, I always try and infuse a little bit of humor into to every meeting. That's one of the things when we chatted on the phone first time. And I've gone like, I think we're going to get on because you have a good sense of humor. And what the folks that don't get to see the video, you're an imposing figure. <laughs> you, how tall are you? Uh, six five. Yeah. Six five guy has written a book, child's book, comedy. And CEO. That's right. I would say that's not a normal combination. I tend to agree with you. <laughs> Shifting gears a little bit. Sure. You're widely read. What is the most recent book or influential book that's altered your perception on your job? You know, I read a book that I enjoy giving out copies to other people called Against the Gods, and it's the remarkable story of risk by a guy named Peter Bernstein. When I think about my role as a CEO, In a lot of ways, it's chief risk officer. It's trying to determine, after you've articulated the strategy and so on, how you are going to navigate the risks that are inherent in the business. And for us, there are everything from Mother Nature to commodity pricing to execution risks to personal liability in the event of using big equipment that's out there planning or cutting or tiling or doing whatever it is that we do. So this book is a great example of how to the notion of bringing risk under control and it's distinguished in the modern times from the distant past and while i can't claim that all of our future risk can be understood measured and predicted i think it does a good job of crystallizing where we are by understanding where we've been so it everything from probability theory to statistical sampling to other diverse activities that it's everything from testing of new drugs to stock picking to wine tasting to the development of business forecasting and game theory, insurance and derivatives. Those are all things that have helped us sort of think through our investment strategy. And if if you try to understand how the great minds of the past tried to quantify those risks, it's really kind of an interesting book to consider. So our core assets, we have a crop insurance company. We trade our own agricultural commodities on the futures and options market. It was an engaging and provocative expose on risk takers that uh, I think are the true humanists helping to release mankind from the chokeholds of superstition and fatalism. I think about what you populate your mind with. You're a bright guy from what I can ferret out online. So you've got some IQ advantages from what I see. And, you know, and I think about your exposure to language Mm -hmm. and education and coming here and risk theory and doing M&A and all of these things. And yet you're faced with this multitude of time frame view Mm -hmm. and being enough of an expert in multiple disciplines. And so I think about your day-to-day 
coming in to the office and your focus. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that stays here or does that go home with you? (laughs) My wife, I wish my wife were here to answer that question for us. (laughs) It goes home with me for sure. And it's not a, I don't think that I take it too far home, but I mean, I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning. I love being on top of what's happening in the world, whether it's geopolitical stuff or it's trends that are affecting the business or it's keeping track of pop culture or sports or whatever the things are. I just, I'm always hungry and thirsty for more of that knowledge. So when I get home, there is a lot of time talking and cogitating and reading and doing things that are still probably related to the things that I do at work. But it's really, for me, it's almost more about being a human because I feel like if you don't have that curiosity, if you're not always trying to figure out what's happening in the world around you, that you're on the road to decline. Well, you have a six-year-old son at home that helps you with that. That's right. That's right. Dad, look at this rock. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I will tell you, it's funny. The chip off the old block part of this is his teachers say that we need to get him more stories. We need more, less nonfiction, more stories. He's a voracious fact gatherer. And whether it's sharks or scorpions or rocks and minerals or whatever it is, he wants to know every single thing about it and he wants to be able to tell you about it. And so they want him to focus more on sort of the creative side because they say he knows more about igneous and sedimentary and metamorphic rocks than anybody else. And and then he's in kindergarten. And so they're like, you know, he's got time to pick up on all that stuff. Let's get him thinking more on the creative side. So do you see some vestiges of the original Babson kind of out that coming out here? I do. I do, for sure. It's, it is funny, isn't it? And you look at your kids and you go, wow, wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. So for you, looking back, uh, either here or in prior times, and, you know, a failure at the time, what appeared to be a failure, which, you know, has that served you or your company best or set you up for future achievement? And if so, why? Good question. We have a, an interesting example. We have some farms out in Virginia, and those farms, for whatever reason, seem like they're always under a dark cloud. It's not the drought, it's the flood. And if it's not the flood, it's the hail. And if it's not the hail, it's the plague of frogs or whatever the thing is for that year. And for us, the hard part about that is we were custom farming that. And that means that we were paying fee for service to have that planted and harvested and everything. And the guy that we had as an operator always felt like we were looking over his shoulder too much. And he felt like he could do it better if he'd done it on his own. And so one of the great, what seemed like a very daunting difficult row to hoe there. We took his enthusiasm and his confidence in himself, and we said, if you really think you can do better than us, let's do a complete reallocation of risk here, and let's turn this into a cash rent farm, which means that we are strictly landlord, collecting rent and allowing him the opportunity to buy all our equipment, buy all our cattle, and run it the way that he wants to run it. And as long as he's making enough money to pay our rent, we're comfortable with him doing that on our property. And so it took a situation that was a very volatile farm for us that usually was to the negative (laughs) and turned it into something that was a cash generator that also had completely removed the risk from it. So I guess one of the things that for me, the takeaway from that is if you are a creative thinker and you're wondering about how you can take a look at the current situation that you have, if you take yourself out of 
the lane of how you're thinking about these little incremental changes and instead think about maybe changing the entire arrangement around, you can take a negative and turn it into a positive. And the truth is he's happier now because he's master of his own domain and he can do what he chooses to do. We're happier now because even though we don't ever have a chance to make any real upside on it, we've certainly protected ourselves to the downside. And our relationship with him is much more collegial now that he's not a hired gun and instead he's a tenant and a partner. You know, I think about putting your hat on backwards. Yeah. You know, and you kind of go, well, we'll look at it this way. Well, now we'll look at it the other way. Oh, that's awesome. And and I'm sure he's just thrilled because the better he does, the better he does. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely right. For you, if you could put an ad on page one of the local paper sharing your company's message or advice, what would it say and why? I think about Will Rogers and the quote, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and a minute to ruin it. And I think that's the message that, at least from the business side, that we want to continue to project. I'm very proud of the fact that we have five tenants that have been with us for over 50 years, two of them for over 75 years. And those are multi-generational partners that we've had. And the reason that we've had them is because we're fair. We treat people with respect and dignity. We listen to their suggestions and we either agree or disagree, but we always come to some sort of a a common ground. And because of that, we get the best farmers. We also are in a fortunate position where we can get the best dirt from a productive index perspective. And I think we get the best employees as well. So the great news is when you're talking about the small little neck of the world that we're in up in north central Illinois, Everybody that's been there for any amount of time knows about the Babs and Farms and knows that that is the gold standard upon which all of their farms should be measured. And because of that, we see the best deals. We see things first, and it's become sort of this flywheel of success. And so I have very little that I've contributed to that. I think that's really I'm standing on the shoulders of folks that have, have built that reputation over the last 100 years or so. But it is absolutely imperative to me that we continue down that road because I think that's the right way to do business. Well, you didn't stick your finger in a pie either. That's right. And mess it up. And it's funny, you know, for a lot of folks, it's working so well, we decide to change it. Right. <laughs> right. You know, imagine that. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, I, you know, I think about integrity and reputation. And, you know, and you guys have been around for a long time. In your exposure to other family office operations. Mm -hmm. Do you know very many family office operations that have been around as long as you guys have? So in the United States, the answer is no. There's a saying that's true in almost every language, which is slightly different, but but paraphrased it, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, which is to say the founder makes it, the son or daughter tries really hard not to lose it, But in so doing, doesn't do anything to grow the business, sort of stagnates the business. And the Gen 3, usually, who doesn't have a connection to it, does something to lose all their money. And so they go back to where they were before the generative dream that had occurred. There are some families here that are five, six generations into it. We have a fifth generation that's born. And so I'm very proud of the fact that we able to weather those storms and that we have through just good familial communication and documentation and celebration and all the governance that we have maintained a a reasonably successful business that also supports everybody's dreams and aspirations as they continue to grow. But I look at places like Europe where you have some families that are 16, 17, 18 generations. um, And I see that there are these, it's a funny perspective when you 
see a family that's owned a vineyard since 1200 or since you see a, a restaurant that's been around and you say, <laughs> you say, I mean, we're not even on the on-ramp. I mean, it reminds me of a funny story. I, I was on an archaeological dig in, in Turkey one time and I was talking to a fellow who was from Bodrum in Turkey and he was saying he loved nautical archaeology, loved to go on wreck dives. And I said, you know, I've been on one wreck dive in Florida Keys. There's a Spanish galleon that's there and it's pretty neat to see a boat that that's old, that's that old. And he said to me, you know, I don't like to go on modern dives. You know, anything about 1492 and later to me is just too modern. <laughs> and as a citizen of the United States, thinking about the fact that 300 years before we declared independence, for him, is still way too modern. It's a funny way to, to look at things. Yeah, they have an institutional memory. I was in Budapest and we had a guide and the guide was talking about the Turks did this and the Turks did that. I says, well, when did the Turks do that? And they said, 600 years ago. Right. They're like, oh, my God, y'all got a long memory. Right. You, you know, you're you mad still. Hold a grudge. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> God. For you, what's the best allocation either of time or initiative that's helped you or your company most and why? When I first really started looking at how I could be helpful, one of the things that I think we didn't have a, a cohesive strategy on was portfolio construction and asset allocation. And you know, we had this core asset that was in the agricultural world. And then other than that, it was sort of willy-nilly stocks and bonds. And there wasn't a lot of communication amongst different managers. And so there was a lot of duplication of efforts and, and things like that. So one of the things that I think has been terrific over the last several years is me as quarterback getting to build that portfolio construction and asset allocation to include lots of other types of assets to diversify out of sort of the long-only equities and mm -hmm. fixed income and, and some farmland. And then also to make sure that everybody knows what seat they have on the bus and that they're fulfilling the roles that they have. And even if they're underperforming in relation to other managers, as long as they're staying and doing what it is that they said that they're doing and they're performing in line with benchmarks that we've set and, and things like that, that we are in a more holistic, thoughtful place than we were eight years ago, 10 years ago. So I think that that, that initiative has been very helpful. And, you know, we've been in a, thankfully for me, and you know, again, this is way more luck than, than skill. Uh, we've been in a pretty darn good investment environment for those eight years. And so even if I wasn't doing a great job, I think I'd still you'd still see that there were some pretty good numbers that have gone up. But we, we're in a place now where I feel like there's a, a little bit of science to it. We're being smart about correlations. We're being smart about the way that we've invested and who we've invested with. And most importantly, that all of those folks know what all the other folks are doing so that there aren't duplicative efforts and there aren't any concentration issues. Well, you know, I think about the farmer. I mean, it could be the world's best farmer and you have a drought. It doesn't matter. Right. You know, so you look at that guy and you kind of go, you expect me to grow a crop with no water. Right. I mean, those guys, you know, I think they work harder in a drought year than they do, obviously, in a good year. So, you know, I think many folks would be well advised mm -hmm. to consider what you had to say there for sure. Over the past three years, what belief or protocol have you put in the company that has most impacted you or your company's success? So the attitude of gratitude, talked about that a little bit before, but my predecessor was maybe a little bit of a harder touch. When things were going great, he said that that was what he expected. And when things weren't going well, he was upset about that. And 
to me, there's real value to being transparent and being present and making sure that everybody realizes how much you appreciate the efforts that they're making. So we had an employee appreciation event here in Denver. I flew all the folks from Illinois out and we went to the stock show and went to the PBR semifinals this year and everybody had nice dinners and all that stuff. And, you know, that was one of the first times that they'd all been invited outside of Illinois. We've done some employee appreciation stuff there. But we also did employee, you know, we've done other employee appreciation events with the operating partners. And we just this year, because of the milestones that I mentioned earlier of the 50 years of service and the 75 years of service and partnership, uh, just on March 1st here a couple of days ago, uh, we had an event where they all got Lucite plaques and they got photos and um, they got a, 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 you know, thank you note from me and from the, from the folks that have been their primary contacts at the, at the office in DeKalb and, um, you know, cakes and all the rest of that stuff. And so, you know, it was the first time that we'd ever um, done anything to really commemorate and memorialize uh, the fact that they've been such great operating partners for so long. So that's another example. And then the third one that I, I really like is we as a family have, have been very philanthropic um, forever, but we've usually done it in the communities in which we live and work. So um, one of the things that I think we had been remiss in doing was supporting the community where our farms are, where we actually are generating capital. And so over the last few years, we've given to 4-H and to the DeKalb Farm Bureau and to lots of other areas that need support and assistance within the, the community where a lot of our operations are. And that's been very appreciated by DeKalb, outlying counties that we're also invested in. I think that's extraordinarily proactive. And not only did you take your employees here but I'm sure the folks that your partners back there are hearing from the locals as well. We appreciate what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. Big deal. What would you say is your most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you or your company most and why? I think the stand-up comedy, if we, if we go back to that, <laughs> the using humor to diffuse situations or to try and create sort of community or culture has been, I think, pretty appreciated amongst uh, the folks, and while I probably on this podcast won't share any of my <laughs> material, <laughs> my material, everybody's keenly interested to know how it went and see the video of it and all the rest of that stuff. So the hardest part has been honestly on the stand up. My mother is fascinated that I did this, and she's very curious to see the video of my performance. And there are a couple of jokes in it that are a little bit blue that I just, <laughs> I'm loath to share with her because I just can't imagine sitting next to my mother, watching her watch this video and hearing her son say these things. But I probably am overblowing how blue and dirty it is, which. Well, you know, there's this hope for this second career. If this one doesn't work out, that's right. you know, that's right. Oh, funny stuff. So for you, what advice would you offer a new CEO that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time? I think that the easiest piece of advice that I think everybody needs to follow is to marathon, not a sprint. And what I think I've done well, I'm very organized. I developed this thing called a heat map. And the heat map for me shows six categories of family education and governance and investments and risk. And as you look down those, I have the rows across those columns are done, hot, short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And if you fill out that map that way, 
that's a great way to articulate your strategy to show people what has happened, what is happening soon, what's going to happen down the pike. And so everybody, I think, can start to follow that vision and they can see how the progress is going. And then it's also easy to know what's teed up for next. So knowing that this is a generational thinking and some of those long-term thoughts are five years out there, I think that helps me set strategy and figure out how to do things on a daily basis, but also look at sort of the bigger picture, always be able to take a step back. And I think the employees get that as well, as well as the family constituents. We have quarterly phone calls and we have a couple of meetings in person a year. And one of the things that we always start with that's sort of touchstone for us is this heat map so that they can see, did he do what he said he was going to do and what is coming up next? You know, as you, as you look at the business, you know, there's that distinction between in the business and on the business. Mm-hmm. If you were to look at the allocation of your time, how much is in it and how much is on it? Good question. I'd say I'm probably 70, 30 in and on. There is still a lot of day-to-day stuff that has to happen and you got to keep the trains running on time. But to be able to think about the strategy and how we're going to try and grow this and how we can be thoughtful about it, it's not an insignificant amount of my time. So busy within that the on really just gets shuffled to the sideline. And, you know, and you think, you know, I was thinking about your Paris time frame. Yeah. If you knew you could take an 18-month time frame right now and then come back, I wonder what kind of things that would strike you for on the business instead yeah. of in the business. I think you're, that's a good question. You know, I don't have the lecture, but it sounded really good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I can tell the constituents, hey, I'll be checking back in in 18 months. Don't worry about it. Right. I'll be back. Right. What's the most common misconception about you or your role as CEO? I think that there are some family members that aren't exactly sure what happens on a daily basis and that I'm a traffic director or that I'm sort of quarterbacking, but ultimately delegating. And I think every good CEO is good at delegating and figures out how to empower their employees to do what they're supposed to do. But I think that the misconception is that somehow I'm, I don't have projects to be working on, that I'm not busy working in the business or on the business. And so I think thinking about sort of grander strategy, thinking about global strategy is something that I wish that everybody knew um, was an exercise um, that I was engaged in and also that it was an exercise that ultimately bears fruit. It's very hard, I think, for people that don't do what you do and haven't done what you do to appreciate Let's say you make a decision to do A versus B. And then, of course, you have the angst. Well, I have a handful of people looking over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. And says, well, then it's compounded because if I'm wrong, you have additional input. <laughs> right. So you go, well, percentage-wise, I better have more rights than wrongs. That's right. I think the part that folks don't get is the angst of the decision process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking back over the past three years, what would or should you have said no to and why? Probably, this is going to sound, I, I don't mean to, to make this sound weird, but I take more meetings than I ought to. I sort of have this innate feeling that I should help everybody. And whenever I have people that realize that hopefully I give pretty okay advice and my willingness to help and to make introductions and because of experience in the past in investment banking, you know, I know a lot of privately held businesses in Colorado and I know a lot of the service providers and professionals that are in accounting or in finance or in legal or wherever it is. And so there are a lot of folks that try to sort of mine me for ideas or intel or 
job placement or whatever it is. And I take a bunch of those meetings. And I feel like when I look at my calendar, there are some times when I'm diverted away from what it is that I need to do more than the job at hand. And so (laughs) I need to be a better curator of those meetings and making sure that I'm not doing a disservice to the business by trying to save the world. Interestingly enough, in my past, I was I was a direct report to a general officer twice. And so much of that, it was like focusing the cannon. And a great deal of the job was protecting his calendar mm-hmm. from this very same thing that you're talking about. And so it happens everywhere and to everyone. Yeah, a hard thing to do. In the day-to-day operation of your company as CEO, what's the personal habit or self-talk dialogue that keeps you and the company focused? Again, this would be a great question for Meredith out front. I am a absolutely rabid list maker. I make lists, and then I make a list about the lists I need to make. I mean, it's probably, I mean, it's the way that I keep myself focused and that I know sort of how to prioritize these things. So the heat map is sort of the global list. And then I have sort of a a weekly list. And then I have a daily list. And I make poor Meredith write up her list so that I know what she's doing. And when we debrief on a daily basis, it's, all right, what are the eight things that you have to do now? And how are these six things going to get done if I don't do this? And, you know, so I wish I could say that I was digital and that it was somehow I was using the nexus of technology in my brain to figure out how to make this seamless and all that stuff. But I have Word documents that I fill out every day. Uh, that is if you have a power outage, That's right. you have no degradation of operation. That's right. That's I mean, you, you know, see, I would tell folks that in the digital world, you're just very secure. Can't That's be hacked. Right. Can't, I, I can spill coffee on it, but I'll never be hacked. <laughs> oh, boy. That's right. That's and I'm right. a, from one list maker to another. And I haven't started to like sticky notes for organizing. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. sure. How do people reach out to you in social media if they want to say hello or talk to you about Babson Farms? I'm not a big tweeter or a I'm on LinkedIn and I but I tell you, I mean my email is tailored babsonfarms.com. The other way that people reach me from time to time is I am very involved in the philanthropic community. And so I serve on a number of boards, nonprofits here in town. And if you are ever interested in getting in touch with me through those avenues, that's another easy way to, to get in touch with me. Giving back. That's right. What is a quote for you that you find meaningful or one that you use frequently? I have a little sort of note that I keep in my on my desk, and it is, greatest use of life is to spend it for something that will outlast it, by a guy named William James. And I think it really speaks to the legacy piece that we're talking about. You know, there's I wear this mantle, take this responsibility very seriously that I am a small cog in this wheel that has been successful for a long period of time. And if there's one thing that we can all do to leave a mark on the community, make it a better place than it was when we found it, and whether that's through philanthropic service or whether that's through supporting the employees and the operating partners and the family and the other constituents that we have, or continuing to build on the reputation of greatness that was originally established by my great-grandfather. You know, those are the things to me that are really the drivers. And so, you know, when I read that, it puts into perspective that we're all here for a pretty short time and you don't have that much time to make a an impact on the world. And so if you can 
do something that will outlast your, yourself, that's the legacy that you leave. You know, I think about anybody that's been successful in the ag. I mean, the last thing you want to be is a bad steward. That's right. And you, because the ground's going to be there after you're gone. Absolutely and right. You mess it up. And I think about that just as a thought process that permeates your family. Because mm-hmm. obviously, it's not just your generation, but it was your uncle before and before. That's right. If colleagues were asked what you're best at, what would they say? And how do you utilize that strength on a day-to-day basis? One of my favorite sayings, and it's a great way to sort of under-promise and hopefully over-deliver, is I always tell people I'm chock full of bad ideas, but every once in a while, one will squeak out that's not terrible. So I'm a, a lot of people use me as a sounding board or uh, an advisor or somebody that they can really lean on to say, I've got this business dilemma, I've got this trying to buy this thing, and I'm looking for a creative way to structure it, or I need to figure out how the capital stack works if I'm going to try and finance this, or I want to figure out this dilemma that I have with this particular employee or whatever it is. I love being that advisor. I love being that person to try and come up with creative solutions or to try and ask them questions that they need to be asking themselves so that they can arrive at the best answer on their own or figure out ways that I can participate in helping them get to the right decision. And so I think the fact that I have this sort of varied background and that I can synthesize information from a lot of disparate sources and that I've been involved with some of the ins and outs on structuring and on negotiating and on pricing and on financial engineering and on investment management and M&A work and all the rest of that stuff. You know, I sort of have this solid base of, of acumen and then hopefully have the creative thinking as well that allows for good decisions to ultimately percolate from those discussions. You know, before you assume this role, was your career path driving toward this role? I would say that I was never scheming to have this be the answer, but I did a lot of, I sort of followed paths that I thought would ultimately be helpful mm-hmm. for this role. And, and, you know, when you think about the investment banking and the investment management before that, and I worked as an accountant in charge of disbursements at a law firm, and I worked on the Chicago Board of Trade on the agricultural commodities floor to learn about futures and options and how to trade those and so on. All of those different components in and of themselves wouldn't put you in a position to be qualified for this role. But I think in the aggregate, it makes a pretty compelling narrative to say that if you follow the logic on all that, that I would be a likely candidate for that role. And I think about that as people prepare for roles. And sometimes it's overt. And sometimes you go, you've been preparing for this role all your life. This has been, I've quizzed you pretty much to death. (laughs) And we still haven't got a joke, but that's okay. We'll find that video somewhere. That's right. right. We'll put it in the show notes. No, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and your candor. And I appreciate the difficulty of your role in trying to take care of a lot of group of customers and taking time out of the middle of your day. Uh, It's been awesome. I sure appreciate your time. Well, Bob, it was my pleasure. I really appreciate it. You betcha. Thank you.